Welcome to the One God Report podcast. This episode is called, Where Do We Go When We Die? Or, What Has the Greek Philosopher Plato Got to Do with Christianity? Interview with Pastor Sean Finnegan. In this episode, I discuss with Sean Finnegan the fact that the Bible says that believers in the Messiah Jesus don't go to heaven, but await the resurrection into the kingdom of God. Sean Finnegan is pastor at Living Hope Community Church in Latham, New York. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Atlanta Bible College, where he teaches courses in church history, apologetics, and basic Bible doctrine. And he's the host of the Restitutio podcast. See the show notes for websites Also, for additional resources on this topic, see the OneGodReport.com webpage entitled, Christians Don't Go to Heaven, But Await the Resurrection to the Kingdom of God. Let's get to the discussion. Pastor Sean Finnegan, thanks for coming on the One God Report podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. So a very interesting topic today, and I think somewhat timely as we are in the season where people think about the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah from the dead. We're going to talk today about where do we go when we die? And a subtitle to this, what has Plato to do with Christianity, the Greek philosopher Plato? So Sean, let me ask you this question. Most Christians today think that those who believe in Jesus, when they die, their soul or their self, their real self, separates from their body and goes to heaven. Is this biblical? And if not, where did Christians get this idea from? Well, there's not too much in the Bible that can be used to support that belief, although there are a couple of verses that seem to lend credibility to that idea. But there are also a couple of verses that seem to support the atheist view that dead people are just gone forever. And there are a couple of verses that seem to support reincarnation. But really, the question is, what what is the preponderance of Scripture? What does the overwhelming majority of Scripture say about the state of the dead? And I think that is pretty clearly sleep. But as far as your question about where does this idea come from, I would say it comes from the serpent himself in the garden. That was the very first thing he said was, you will not die. That was the very first person who mentioned this this idea that you will not die. And that idea of you will not die has really swept various cultures. I'm hesitant to say all cultures, but the ancient Egyptians believed in it. They believed that you had to have these secret formulae from the book of the dead and that when you you die your soul goes to the kingdom of the dead and that's why they built the big pyramids to equip their wealthy dead with what they needed to survive in the afterlife of course the greeks believe that at death your soul would arrive at the shores of the river styx and in the realm of the god hades and charon the ferryman would bring you across to your different destinies The Norse gods, uh, as popularized by the movies about Thor, they also believe that upon cremation, uh, you would go to four different places, Valhalla, where warriors would 
duke it out in battle. And there were other realms where you could go if you weren't quite as robust of a warrior. The Zoroastrians, the Buddhists, the Hindus, the Taoists, really, Bill, the question isn't so much uh, where does the idea come from? It's why is there any other idea at all? I mean, how dare the Bible take an alternate position here? But uh, really, uh, on the subject of how this all got into Christianity, we find the influence of Plato probably to be the most likely culprit because of the early church fathers' fascination with Plato, especially those in the, I would say, third century in particular, and after, who were all trained in Neoplatonism, Middle Platonism and Neoplatonism, and were very conversant with Plato's writings. And if I was to put my finger on one book of Plato's that specifically addresses this subject, it would be the Phaedo. And the Phaedo is an account of Socrates' last days after he's been condemned by the city to be executed. And in that book, Plato has these dialogues where they're talking about what it was like for Socrates, and Socrates is discoursing on uh, what he thinks about death. And in one place in that book, 58E, it says, it never occurred to me to feel sorry for him as you might have expected me to feel at the deathbed of a very close friend. The man actually seemed quite happy, both in his manner and what he said. He met his death so fearlessly and nobly, end quote there. But this is, Bill, a quote that talks about Socrates and his attitude towards death when he was facing drinking the hemlock and dying from this execution. This mindset is really explained and built upon throughout the book. The book essentially offers an apology for the immortality of the soul. And so one place a little later on in the book, uh, 64C, we read, do we believe that there is such a thing as death? Most certainly, said Simeus in reply. Is it simply the release of the soul from the body? Is death nothing more or less than this, the separate condition of the body by itself when it is released from the soul and the separate condition by itself of the soul when released from the body? Is death anything else than this? Certainly not, Socrates, said Simeus. So, Bill, you know, I think what we have is really a wide-ranging intuition in fallen humanity that, uh, really a delusion, that when you die, you will not really die. You really just go somewhere else. And I think the entry point into Christianity in particular, and and to Judaism during the Hellenistic period, is the writings of uh, the Greek philosophers, especially Plato. Just one other note on this. As Socrates comes to die, Plato's writing about it in the Phaedo here, he's about to drink the poison. And Socrates asks his executioner, he's like, well, my good fellow, you understand these things. What ought I to do? And the executioner says to him, well, just drink it and then walk about until you feel weight in your legs and then lie down. And then it will act of its own accord. And then Socrates gets the cup. He's cheerful about drinking the poison. There's no tremor. There's no change of his expression. He's calm. There's no sign of distate. He drinks the cup down in one gulp. Everyone starts crying in the room. Socrates rebukes him. He's like, what's wrong with you? Calm yourselves. Be brave. You know, he's about to escape this terrible tomb of the body. It's always interrupting him from philosophizing and going to this cogitative state 
which eventually in Christianity gets renamed heaven. So for Socrates and Plato, death is not an enemy. Not at all. It's to be embraced because you finally get released from all the burdens and the interruptions of physical existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sean, I can't help but think how I've been told, and I, I think probably it's fair to say I used to believe that the idea that death is simply the separation of the soul from the body. I think most people would think that a statement like when we die, our soul separates from the body, that that is in the Bible. I've been told that by the average person in the pew, right up to PhDs in Bible theology, that death is nothing more than the separation of the soul from the body. Yeah. And they're quoting Plato. They're not quoting Jesus. I mean, you look at Jesus, think about him for a moment. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was facing death, how much of a contrast do we see against Socrates and his stoicism and his almost embracing of death? What is Jesus doing? He's trembling. He's sweating like droplets of blood. He's crying out to his God. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I mean, for Jesus, it's clear death is an enemy. It is not to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't, be, you couldn't have a stronger contrast. And uh, Jesus is talking about a metaphorical cup that he doesn't want to drink, but he will if he has to, if it's if it, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. So, I mean, really such a strong difference between the biblical view of death, where it is not treated as a friend, is actually called the last enemy to be destroyed, versus the Greek philosophical view of death, or even any of these other cultures and how they conceive of it. Hmm. So, if people don't go to heaven when they die, and I think this is something that we almost grow up with this in our diapers. You think, okay, I'm going to go to heaven when we die. We're told that from a young age. But I think that most Christians can understand that, that there's some problem with that because there is such an emphasis in the Bible on the resurrection of the dead. But Billy Graham, these guys that are evangelists, they'll say, how do you know you'll go to heaven when you die? That's sort of the idea in modern Christianity. But if it's not biblical, if going to heaven when you die is not biblical, what is the biblical view of what happens to a person when they die? Uh, I'll I'll get right to that in a second, Bill, but just as a, a way of sharing my own experience with this subject, where I learned about the idea of the immortality of the soul, the idea of going off to heaven, was the Roadrunner cartoons. Hmm. You remember that? The Coyote remember and the, the Roadrunner? Runner. I didn't know they were <laughs> dealing with the going to heaven, though. Well, the Coyote would die. He would always try to kill the Roadrunner, and he would turn into a translucent being and, oh, and kind send of upwards. Away. And... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it's kind of a funny thing, but a lot of us get an intuition about um, spiritual matters from cartoons. And the influence of uh, television, I think, can't be understated, especially in my generation. I'm a Gen X and, you know, we didn't have the internet growing up and you had cartoons. And uh, that's sad to say, but has probably has a much bigger influence than any of us would like to admit. You asked if we don't go to heaven, well, where where do we go? And I, I, I would say that the biblical term for this is the word sleep. And we find uh, quite a number of scriptures. I I don't want to be too tedious here and 
listing out dozens, literally dozens of scriptures on this. But uh, all throughout the Kings, we find statements like this, 1 Kings 2.10, which says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And that phrase, slept with his fathers, uh, this is actually talking about his death, and it's very clear from the context. Same thing happens in the description when Solomon goes to die in 1 Kings 11.43, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. Hey, Sean, um, let me interrupt just yeah, one go ahead. second. Uh, just thinking about David, you remind me of the passage in Acts where Peter is preaching, and he says, David did not ascend to heaven. He's in the grave. Right? Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, Acts, uh, Acts 2.29, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And then verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, mm -hmm. uh, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and so on. So, uh, look, if David didn't ascend to, to the heavens, then where is he? Well, he's already said that. He's in the tomb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, maybe people think that this is just too simplistic of an understanding. But, uh, you know, look, if, the, if it's what the Bible says, then, you know, if I'm a biblical Christian, I got to get on board with that. I can't mm -hmm. criticize it and say, oh, it's not as sophisticated as the Egyptians or the Greeks. It goes back to what you said before. God said, you will certainly die. Interesting. He didn't say yeah. your body will die and you will keep living in a disembodied state. He said, you will yeah. die. Yeah. yeah. Keep going. No, I really appreciate that point, Bill, because in our reports today, in news reports in particular, but in a, a lot of people's speech, when somebody has died, you never, ever use the, the pronoun. You never use uh, him or her, for example, to describe a dead person. It's always the body of him, the body of her. Hmm. And that's normalized in our speech today that never when we talk about a dead person, do we personalize the dead person. It's just the, sort of like the leftover of the physical remains mm. of the real person, and obviously the real person somewhere else. Well, that's not the view we see in Scripture. There is no bifurcation mentioned that the person, him or herself, is separate from the body. Mm -hmm. It's all considered holistically. Like, for example, Ecclesiastes 9.5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. And then verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So what does that mean? That means that we're conscious, but we can't think? No. <laughs> I think what it's saying is if there's no thought and there's no knowledge and there's no wisdom and no work, then hello, you're unconscious. You're not awake. And look, if the, if the dominant metaphor in scripture and obviously everyone recognizes it is a metaphor because sleeping people are still breathing. Sleeping people can have dreams, right? So it is a metaphor, but whatever the metaphor communicates, it cannot mean awake. Mm -hmm. If the metaphor of sleep is used to describe something and that thing is awake or that person is awake, then it destroys the whole point of the metaphor. Uh, Psalm 6, 4 says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. And Sha'ol, who will give you praise? Or Psalm 13, 3, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Uh, so it's the, this idea of an unconscious state. Jesus also uses this when he talks about Lazarus. 
And he tells his disciples, hey, Lazarus is falling asleep, but I go to wake him up. And the disciples are like, whoa, that's good. You know, he's going to recover. Uh-huh. And then Jesus is like, no, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> and that's pretty clear. But Jesus looks at death as sleep, that it is this unconscious state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, we can, and I could go on and on, look at all these scriptures throughout, not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament to see that Sleep is the dominant way that death is talked about in Scripture. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, really what you're saying is that the human soul or the self is not immortal, that it really can die, as God said. You mentioned already the phrase conditional immortality. What do you mean by conditional immortality? Yeah, that's... Uh... That's the idea that we are not by default immortal. And again, that is that is an idea that Plato went at great lengths to prove in his in his book, The Phaedo, where he gives all these arguments for why the soul must be immortal. That is not found in scripture. There is no place in the Bible that that is trying to make the point that the soul is immortal or anything like that. Instead, what we find is a real dedicated focus on resurrection, a corporate event, not an individual event, but a corporate event at the end of the age, that this is the solution to death. And that we find, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul goes on and on defending the notion of resurrection to the Corinthians who were doubting it and were saying, well, we don't believe in the resurrection. And part of Paul's argument is, well, if you don't believe in resurrection, then Jesus isn't raised from the dead. And you're still in your sins. And what are we doing here? <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, these two are very much linked together. And so Jesus serves for us as the pattern. Uh, Jesus dies. Jesus gets buried in the tomb. And then Jesus is raised from the dead. And we know that Jesus didn't go somewhere else because in John 20, 17, when he's talking to Mary just after his resurrection, He very clearly says to her, I have not ascended to my God and your God, to my father and your father. Mm -hmm, Not yet. Mm -hmm. Yet, right. Mm -hmm. And that is something that he would do uh, however many days later. But uh, at that point when he met her, he had not yet ascended. So it's pretty clear based on the pattern of Jesus that when somebody dies, they remain in the grave. And, uh, you know, if you want to get philosophical and fancy about that, God bless you. There's lots of questions to talk about there. But whatever it is you end up determining is going on, it cannot go against the dominant biblical way of talking about it, which is sleep. Mm -hmm. And being awoken, raised. And then awake. Yes, very good. And being awakened on the last day for the resurrection. And that's Daniel 12, too. I mean, Jesus mentions it as well in John chapter 5. But Daniel 12, too, is so powerful where it says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt and shame. So the idea of sleep and awake is throughout scripture. And yet as Christians, we've really struggled with this because we inherited at the same time, the very trendy cultural idea, especially I I would argue once again, that the third century is really the main point where this enters Christianity in a strong way with people like Origen and uh, his theological descendants uh, that, you know, they just know that the soul has to live on forever because that's, that's their education. That's their culture. That's the air they breathe. And so they just combine 
Plato's ideas with Christianity in this way that eventually sticks. Although over time, there are Christians that still cling to the old belief, although that diminishes century after century until it's sort of recovered in the Reformation era as people start reading their Bibles again. And you have people like William Tyndale, the famous translator, once again teaching that dead people are asleep until the resurrection. So uh, as far as the, the idea of immortality, it's conditioned upon resurrection. It's not unconditional. And that's what we mean by conditional immortality, that it's, it's not native or natural immortality, but it's conditioned upon God doing something to raise you to an immortal body. And that's very nicely described for us in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which I, I won't read out here, but it's, you know, it's a long chapter, over 50 verses that describes how immortality is gained by the Christian and is gained through resurrection. Right. Raised immortal. Yep. And, you know, this is something that evangelicals by and large are missing out on. Although there are a few here and there that see the light. I just mentioned a little quote here from Richard Baucom, who wrote a nice little article on eschatology in the new Bible dictionary. He says the Christian hope for life beyond death is not based on the belief that part of man survives death. All men, through their descent from Adam, are naturally mortal. Immortality is the gift of God, which will be attained through the resurrection of the whole person. So, I mean, you do get little glimpses here and there, Bill, but by and large, there's still this majority view that wants to sort of cram Plato into Scripture and find a compatible way to read the two together, where you've got death, you have the body is asleep, but not the person. And then the soul is awake in heaven, but then it comes back to the body in resurrection. This sort of boomerang theology is, is totally foreign to my Bible. Yeah. We'll talk about this later, but I think that part of the problem with the idea that a person simply escapes his body and goes disembodied to heaven is it deflects from the real truth and the real hope that we are to be raised from the dead and live on this earth. And maybe part of the reason that people think we're going to heaven is, yes, Jesus, the man, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. However, you don't have to read that much in the Bible to see our hope is that he will return to earth. Peter says, pray that God will send the Messiah from heaven. He will return to the earth. And at the time of the resurrection, we see Christ Jesus returning to the earth. That's the hope. So it's a yeah. deflection. We'll come back to that. And maybe I got ahead of well, ourselves. Let, let me uh, just add a comment to that. Look, if if we all end up with the earth depopulated, then Satan wins. God created okay, the world. God created the world. Oh, I see what he you're saying. If everybody just wanted goes people, disembodied. Yeah, okay. Yeah, if God created the world, it says in Isaiah, what is it, 45, 8 or 18, that he made it not waste, but to be inhabited. If God's intention was to make a nice world and have people in it that were in fellowship with him and with each other, and in the end, he ends up with a depopulated, ruined earth, then Satan wins. Satan has ruined God's project. Yeah. And you know, I, goes, I, I can't go, get on board with that. Yeah, exactly. And it relates to what you're saying about the Greek idea, too, that the material, the bodily is evil and we want to escape it. There's a phrase in Hebrew for those that came back and gave a bad report about the promised land. 
the phrase is dibata arts. They spoke evil of the land. And to this idea that we're going to escape this earth, it's speaking evil of what God has promised us. I don't want to live in, in this place that God has created for us. I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah. It's, it's like refusing the land that God has promised us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree with you. And there, are, there are other problems with it, too, but I, we'll get back to that later. Yes, what, yeah. Let's, what's next? Let's do this. There are a number of passages, and you mentioned this, that some people will go to to say, well, see, when I die, I go to heaven. And let's just look at a couple of them. I can put in the show notes, your lectures, other articles. But let's just look at a couple of them, maybe two of the main ones that I've heard where people say, oh, yeah, see, when I die, I go immediately into the presence of Jesus consciously. Uh-huh. For instance, Luke 23, 43, the thief on the cross came to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, and that's usually in the Bibles, kind of quoted this way and punctuated this way. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So there, Jesus is telling that thief on the cross that today, you know, very soon after you die, you're going to be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, you're right, a a very typical text used. And and there there aren't a lot. Like you said, there's a handful. You know, I've got, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 verses that say dead people are asleep or they're not awake. There are just a, a couple of these little verses here and there that uh, people read. Uh, you can read it different ways, and they read it this way. So Luke uh, 23, you have the thief on the cross, and the other guy is ridiculing Jesus and mocking him. And, and this one guy, I love this guy. He's the one that stands up. <laughs> he's the only one there that stands up for Jesus. And he says, do you not fear God since we're under the same sentence of condemnation? And, you know, he says, we're doing it because we deserve it, but he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I think verse 42 is almost always evacuated from the conversation on verse 43, where Jesus then says to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Because if you understand verse 42 and the guy's request, then that sets the context for the response that Jesus gives in verse 43. So in verse 42, he has basically just the information on the sign above Jesus' head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's a messianic accusation Hmm. that Jesus is claiming to be Messiah. And as a Jew, he would understand Messiah means kingdom. And so he makes the confession, essentially a faith confession, that Jesus is legit, that Jesus is going to rule as Messiah. And so he says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yeah. And uh, boy, this is like uh, accidentally ending up next to the, the president of a powerful country <laughs> just mm. and having, having a conversation and, and being like, hey, you know, remember me when you, you know, somebody that maybe has been elected president, but hasn't yet taken power. And you say, remember me when you come into office. Because Jesus is going to be in a position of great power and authority, and this thief knows that he is guilty and that he needs, he needs a connection hmm. if he's going to have any shot. And so uh, Jesus, the shocking thing about Jesus is not that he tells this guy, 
that there's going to be a paradise or anything like that. The shocking thing to me about it is that Jesus is saying to him, I don't have to wait until I come in my kingdom. I can tell you this today. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is giving a promise right then and there, a pardon, if you will, right then and there, that when paradise comes or when the kingdom comes, this guy is going to be given admittance. And uh, this understanding is very natural to the text, I believe. It's very natural to the word paradise, which we see throughout Scripture refers to a future state, not to a present state. So, for example, in Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And in fact, the, uh, the Greek word for garden in Genesis chapter 2, in the Septuagint, uses the word paradise. So what is paradise in Scripture? It's Eden restored. It's, it's the garden that God originally had, once again, brought to reality in this world, as we see in the last two chapters of the last book of the Bible. And so my solution here, Bill, and this is certainly not my invention, uh, David Burge argues for this, the famous uh, conditionalist author Leroy Froome argues for this, but it's, it's simply to recognize that commas in Scripture are added by translators. They're not in the original text. And so when we read Luke 23, 43, and we recognize that the comma is movable based on the understanding of the translator, we can easily read this as, truly I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. So he's saying it to him today. He's giving him the part of today that in the future, when paradise, when earth is rejuvenated to a paradise-like state, this guy will be allowed entrance. Yep. It's a promise that Jesus made to him that day, and he had the authority to make that promise that day. Very good. Also, we've already talked about how Jesus himself was not in paradise that day. He had died. He was in the grave. He had not yet ascended to his father. So it doesn't make sense to claim that Jesus himself was in paradise that day today. No, we know, we know for sure that Jesus was in the, in the tomb. There's no question about that. And we know for sure that he had not yet ascended to the Father. So I, I don't see really what else you can do with that understanding, uh, because if Jesus is promising to go somewhere with this guy that Jesus doesn't go, then that makes Jesus out to be a liar. And I, I can't accept that. Mm -hmm. And it also abolishes the hope of the resurrection. <laughs> Sean, let's go to another passage that's probably even more famous for claiming that when you die, your disembodied soul goes to heaven. And that's 2 Corinthians 5, 8, which in the translation I'm looking at reads something like this. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, is Paul saying here in 2 Corinthians that he would rather escape his body and go disembodied to heaven? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. We have to recognize the context here. Paul has already very clearly stated that he does not want to be a disembodied soul. And he did that in, in verse three. And really, I'll just start in verse one, where we read, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, which I believe is talking about his body, 
we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so our resurrected bodies, as I understand this, is stored up with God in the heavens right now until the day when it comes to fruition on earth. It's a standard Jewish way of looking at things. Things are planned or stored up with God before they come into reality on earth. Verse two, for in this tent, for our present body, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So verse three, when it's is talking about being found naked, that would be like having our bodies destroyed and then not getting a new body or a uh, resurrected body, but just going around naked as a naked soul. He says, we don't want to be found. We don't want to be found naked. Just disproves it actually more than proves it. And then verse four, for while we are still in this tent, this current existence, current body, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. We don't want to be a disembodied soul, Mm -hmm. but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so when he gets down to verse six, he says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Well, how is it going to be when we are with the Lord? We are going to be in our resurrected body. So in verse eight, when he says we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, I think the assumption is in our resurrected body, not in a disembodied state, because he's already said he doesn't want to be unclothed. Warren Prestige, who is a Baptist minister out in New Zealand, he puts it this way. He says, Paul simply ignores the intervening sleep of death here. And this he may do precisely because the intervening state is not consciously experienced at all by the dead. After death, the next thing we know is that we are summoned by Christ. On this basis, we can endorse the suggestion that in the consciousness of the departed believer, there is no interval between dissolution and investiture, which is resurrection, however long the interval may be in the calendar of earthbound human history. That's a quote from F.F. Bruce in uh, Warren's book here on life, death, and destiny. So I think this is really a key understanding to wrap our minds around, because it also explains the text in Philippians 2, where he says he would rather be with the Lord. From the subjective experience of the person, there is no consciousness of the intermediate state. So the moment you die is the moment you're with the Lord in the resurrection. However, on earth, thousands of years could have passed. And that's another reason why sleep is a good metaphor. I fall asleep. I sleep eight hours. I wake up and it's like, whoa, I didn't realize eight hours had passed. And it's the same with the sleep of yeah. a dead person. Yeah, I think that's part of the genius of why God chose that term throughout the scriptures to describe this to us. Mm. I remember once I had my wisdom teeth out, and I was sitting there in the chair in the dentist's office, and they were telling me they injected something, and they told me to count backwards, and I was counting backwards, you know, 100, 99, 98. And then they said to me, you can go in the other room. And I'm thinking, all right, well, this is going to take a while for this stuff to kick in. So I go in the other room and my wife comes in and she says, how did it go? And Mm -hmm. I say to her, how did what go? They didn't (laughs) this. I'm serious, Bill. This is what I said. They didn't do it yet. How did what go? And Uh, she said, no, they did it. (laughs) uh, But it was absolutely time travel. I went from that one moment to however many minutes or an hour later And it was like the blink of an eye. Hmm. And uh, that's the experience of death. So if you don't experience death, you just are unconscious during it, then 
you can, from the subjective perspective, leap over the intermediate state. And I think that's just what Paul does here, because we have so many other scriptures where he does describe death as sleep, like in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. I think another thing that's important about this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's all in the context of the resurrection from the dead. Maybe it's a little hard to see that because of the chapter break, but just to go up a few verses into chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's when we're brought into the presence of the Lord Jesus at the resurrection. And the parallel, as you mentioned, between this section in 2 Corinthians is really Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, where it's clear that the hope is not a disembodied going away to a nebulous heaven, but the hope is the resurrection from the dead. Let me just read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. But in fact, Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, of course, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So that's the context of the passage in 2 Corinthians 5. And I think sometimes, to Sean, part of the problem is this verse gets misquoted. They'll often say something like, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. And it's, it's a misquotation of the verse. Paul doesn't say that. No, he, he says, doesn't say that. Yeah, he says, I would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And it's all in the context of his hope and expectation of being clothed with a new immortal body. Yeah. So I, I think he's just not specifying the further clarifier that in a resurrected body. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'd rather be away from this body and, and at home with the Lord in a new body. Amen. Um, but, uh, you know, people get people get confused. I really appreciate you bringing up First Corinthians 15 in the 20s there. That one verse you read, verse 23, where it talks about each in his order, Christ the first verse, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. I mean, mm -hmm. this really gives us a solid anchor point for when resurrection happens, because there are some people that get confused on this. They think when you die, you're resurrected into your spiritual body to live in heaven or something like that. That's not what's being said here. Not at all. Hmm. The, the pattern is Christ. There is no mention of a, a spiritual body that Jesus floats around in. No, he says, touch me. He says, do you have any food? He eats fish. Hmm. <laughs> you know? Yep. And he, he even says, you know, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see that I have. So, I mean, there is there is no negative mentality against the physical in Scripture that I think you, you were mentioning earlier. And the problem, too, with this idea of floating off to heaven or hell or some other subterranean compartment, uh, as some Christians are these days teaching, is that this does not 
give us a more comforting idea. You know, the old acronym rest in peace, RIP. Mm. You know, that's that gives us a sense of closure, a sense of peace. If that person is still alive, but just relocated somewhere else, you're going to be praying and it opens the door for all kinds of abuses by the church, the sale of indulgences mm. as happened in the 1500s. And then this folk idea that your ancestors are watching everything you do and they're looking, I don't want my dead relatives looking at me seeing everything I do. Do you? That's well, just, yeah, it's not a matter of want or not. It's a matter of <laughs> if the scriptures say that people are still alive and able to see things. And, but you're absolutely right. It sort of opens the door to all kinds of spiritism and yes, all the, the necromancy, yep. prayer of the dead, yep. and abuses by the church and praying millions of times. Oh, God, please get my relative in a good place or in a better place and all this. Mm. You know, it just it relieves all that when you say, all right, whatever has happened in that person's life, it's over now. Mm-hmm. Whether it was good or whether it was bad is over now. The book is sealed and we're going to wait until the last day and then judgment is going to happen. But in the meanwhile, they're just resting in peace. They're they're asleep, the sleep of death, as it says in the psalm. And we can just leave it there and be okay. And as a pastor, I, I do go through this with people where I do see this as more comforting. Mm-hmm. But other people, you know, they they say, oh, well. Grandpa so-and-so left me a sign in my latte, and it's like, Mm. that barista does that same sign in everybody's latte, okay? Mm. (laughs) And there's superstition and all this, and it's just, it's all all really unnecessary. Mm. We stick with what the Bible says. Amen. Uh, We just read last night in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul says, comfort one another with these words. It's not about a disembodied, going away, escape to a nebulous heaven. It's about the resurrection from the dead at the coming of Jesus Christ. That's how we are to comfort one another in death. Sean, you know what? We kind of started on this a little bit. Let's come back to this question. If people's souls don't separate from their bodies at death and go to this disembodied state in heaven, that's really a lie, right? Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the other ways in in which this can affect our thinking and and how we live. Does this lie deflect from what is real? Yeah, yeah, I think it totally does. The the term I would use is eclipse. That uh, this idea of heaven at death, as I like to call it, eclipses the biblical hope of inheriting the earth, Mm. of entering the kingdom, of enjoying the regeneration of sitting down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This idea of heaven at death, just like a, in, in an eclipse, the moon goes in front of the sun, blocking the sun. The sun is way more powerful and way bigger, but that moon is blocking it, and so you can't see it for a little while. And that's what this heaven at death does. It stands out front of the biblical hope, blocking the glorious rays of what God plans to do with this old world when he makes everything wrong with it right from shining on us and instead replacing it with this counterfeit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a real problem because Jesus links together gospel with kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so, look, if the kingdom is the gospel and you've substituted the kingdom for floating on a cloud and plucking a harp, you know, what 
<laughs> that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, also, that's that's dangerous. Yeah, you're right. It's also, let me say it this way, satanic, because to deflect man from God's promise, to deflect man from believing in God's promise, God promises a renewed earth, a regeneration, a resurrection on this earth for mankind. And if man doesn't want to believe that promise, but instead has been directed to believe something different, that's that's dangerous. And I think, Sean, that even the average Christian can begin to understand this. They know that in the Bible, because we respect the scripture, they know that there is a hope of resurrection from the dead. So it's hard to put together the idea of going disembodied and being in some kind of a blissful state in heaven with Jesus, and yet still waiting for the resurrection, having a body again. There's something that's not right in that understanding. So let's get back to the idea that, hey, our real hope is the resurrection from the dead into the kingdom of God, the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're longing for. Amen. Yeah, you make me think of the test case of Lazarus. Poor guy, right? I mean, he dies, he goes off to heaven, chills out for four days, and then Jesus brings him back into his body. <laughs> mm. That just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. However, if you think of it this way, he dies and he's unconscious, and then his next waking moment, he's in a tomb, and he's like, somebody's calling my name. Mm. What's going on? And he, he comes out. You know, there's glory in that. Whereas the other one just makes a mockery of the whole biblical incident. And I think you're right. There is a denigration of God's design, God's design for the world, God's design for humanity. If you really think about the human body, the human brain, and all that goes into it, our hearts pump 2,000 gallons of blood every day, and they never rest. That's just ridiculous. We've got 100,000 miles of blood vessels in us, 45 miles of nerves, 25 feet of intestines. You know, it's just, you, you look at the creation of God, and it, we should not say, oh, well, this thing's pretty shabby. I wish I could float around and go through walls. That's denigrating God's good design. You know, the problems with our body are, are aging and injury and sickness, these kinds of things. And these are exactly the sorts of things that God, intends to heal in the resurrected body so that we'll be able to enjoy him and each other forever on a real world. Uh, if you've got time for it, I've got a, a, another quote. Please. Uh, there was a science fiction author named Isaac Asimov, uh, an atheist, and he said, imagination has never managed to build up a serviceable heaven. The Islamic heaven has its horis ever available and ever virginal so that it becomes an eternal sex house. The Norse heaven has its heroes feasting at Valhalla and fighting each other between feasts so that it becomes an eternal restaurant and battlefield. And our own heaven is usually pictured as a place where everyone has wings and plunks a harp in order to sing unending hymns of praise to God. And then he, he goes on, what human being with a modicum of intelligence could stand any of such heavens or the others that people have invented for very long? Where is there a heaven with an opportunity for reading, writing, exploring, interesting conversation for scientific investigation? I never heard of one. Mm. And, you know, that breaks my heart that these atheists, you know, they, they only hear the folk Christianity. They don't hear the real biblical faith 
that talks about a renewed world where mm. you are going to have conversations and you can create and you can explore. do things and explore. explore. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm, I'm exploring. I'm telling you, I think it's in us who we are, how God has made us. That is going to come out as well in the resurrection life. And we like to discover, we like to explore. This is a good earth. So that's yeah. the real hope. Yeah. That's, and that's right. The guy, that guy was right. If only he could have heard the proper explanation of what the biblical hope is of God's promise of the kingdom, the renewed life on earth for mankind. Yeah. Sean, thanks a lot. Let me just end by reading from John chapter five, verses 28 to 29, the words of Jesus. Jesus says in this chapter that the father has given him the power to raise the dead. It's the father's power granted to Jesus Christ, the son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus says, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Mm. Amen. And you see there where it says they are in the tombs. Mm. We'll hear his voice. Yep. Hey, Sean, thanks a lot. Appreciate you taking the time. And I will post some other links to places where you've dealt with the other scriptures that maybe people suggest talk about sure. being able to go disembodied to heaven. Sean has really dealt with these in a couple of lectures to college classes and other papers. Hey, happy resurrection well, I, day. Yeah, you too. I appreciate it, Bill. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yishma'u. The humble will hear and rejoice.